Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. and welcome back to Truth and Justice. This is your Friday follow-up episode for Season 5, Episode 35. In this episode, you heard the first half of a long interview that I did with Jason Baldwin back in 2018 in his office in Austin, Texas. In this first half of the interview, we we learned a lot about Jason's personality and kind of his childhood. And then next week, or this week, and here in two days, You're going to hear the second half of the interview, which gets much more into the case and the aftermath of what happened to him. I'm joined today in the studio, as always, by our producer and editor extraordinaire, Mr. Mike Bussing. Hey, Bob. And the voice of the people, Mr. Zach Weaver. Hey, guys. All right, now let's go ahead and get started with your questions about Season 5, Episode 35. Texas Ranger James Holland is a legendary interrogator. They call him the serial killer whisperer. You can't hide those indications, and that's why yesterday I knew that he did it. But now, shocking interrogation tapes reveal how the super cop really operates. And that's why they asked me to come in, because I'm special. From something else, The Marshall Project and Sony Music Entertainment, this is Smokescreen. Just say you're sorry. Listen and follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. You've seen the film. You know the game. Now, Jumanji just got real. Only at Chessington World of Adventures. Featuring Daredevil Dad, Mom on a Mission, and the kids who can't wait to ride the world's first Jumanji roller coaster. An epic adventure awaits. World of Jumanji. Only at Chessington World of Adventures. Book this summer's must-do day out at Chessington.com. All right, Zach, I'm going to start off this week just like we did last week since you are, you've actually studied this case for many more years than I have. Uh, and, you know, this interview, I think, was I, tr- I tried in both of the interviews to ask questions and draw information out that isn't the norm or the normal questions people ask. So I guess the first thing is what did you think about Jason's interview? It was really nice to hear from him. He sounded like he was in really good spirits, which is nice to hear from an interview like this. Mm hmm. That was that was the first thing I took away was he definitely sounded like he was in good spirits. And it it was a fun conversation. At least this first half was a fun conversation. Right. You know, at the end of it, when you start getting to the actual case stuff, it gets rough. But it was a fun conversation. You know, I had to laugh really hard at the beginning when he was talking about 
that he was grounded for something Damien did. For Damien getting ready to run away, he got grounded. Right. And I literally had the same, not the same thing, but almost exactly the same thing happened when I was younger. I got grounded for what my best friend did. Really? My best friend and I lived three or four blocks away from each other. And his mother worked nights. So anytime we'd stay at his house, stay the night, we could do whatever we wanted. And one night he was going to, we were going to sneak out and my mom wouldn't let me stay the night at his house. Mm -hmm. And for whatever reason, his mom came home that night and he was gone. And his mom called my house and my mom woke me up and said, you know where Kyle is? I said, is he here? She said, nope. I said, I have no idea. Granted, I knew exactly where he was. Right. Yep. And then I ended up grounded for that too. So I've been there. So you could relate with Jason. Very much so could relate. Yeah, and you know, you were saying as far as he's being upbeat, I think Jason's always been, to be honest with you, that's why I can't wait for you all to hear the second half of the interview, because I was stunned in the interview during the second half when we got into the case material at the, I guess, the fire inside of Jason mm-hmm. over all of this, because he's always been like the nice guy, the sweet guy, always and super positive. He is, you know, all the time. Yeah. And it's the first time, I mean, I have never seen an interview with him where he really gets fired up. And, and you're going to get to hear that in the, in the second half of this. Yeah, he seems pretty even keel all the time. When yeah, he always is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but the thing is, Jason is so smart. You know, so like I said, he, you, you see and hear the fire in him in the second half that's going to be airing on Sunday. But it's not, it's not like like blind rage it's not like you know you know somebody loses their mind and gets pissed it's all smart like his his reasons for being upset are articulated mm-hmm. very well when he does get upset but yeah I, I was just really impressed with jason in general yeah you know and the story of him the hide and seek story i mean that was really disheartening to hear mm-hmm. how, how all those kids got in trouble and how they find them and, you know and they're and these people are poor right you know, i mean they're they're taking like you said, he got fined a th- $500. His brother got five $500, which clearly mm-hmm. that's just the parents paying. Right. That's $1,000 out of the parents' pocket that they probably don't have. Right. And they didn't have. You know, and I'm not hurting by any means. I'm not rich. I'm not doing awesome, but I'm not hurting by any means. But if I had to pay $1,000 for fines for my kids, like. Un- unexpectedly. Unexpectedly. That would hurt me too. Right. Yeah. And he, he said, if I, I actually didn't listen to the interview this week. Other than, you know, I, I was there obviously in the room when I recorded it. Mm-hmm. But it seems like I think he said something about how that affected their Christmas. That yeah, he said they had a hundred dollar Christmas budget mm-hmm. for the whole family. Right, so that was like ten Christmases. That's right. Yep. Yeah, it was it was ten Christmases worth of fines for playing hide and seek, and it's also how he got put on the the police radar. Mm-hmm. You know, it's how he became you know a, a kid with a record. Yeah. Once they started targeting him after they went after Damien Eccles. All right. Our first question comes from Brittany. How was Jason's mom Gail doing? I've always admired her dignity and strength during the whole thing, and she is definitely someone who's had a place in my heart. Yeah, you know, that's a good question. I'm not. I'm not real sure. I know Jason spoke of her in our conversations over the years since you know 2018. I haven't asked him recently how she's doing, but she has been an incredible support for Jason, uh, both while he was in prison and then after he got out. And you know that was a lot of what played into when he decided to take the Alfred plea and get out, you know, a big part of that obviously was, you know, they were telling him, listen, you know, Damien's on death row. If we don't take this deal and you guys end up not getting out, they're going to kill him. But another part of that was 
that he was he he was tired of his mother having to go through this, having her her son in prison, and he saw how hard it was on her. And so you know she she's been a rock for him, and he's also been a rock for her. Where he said, you know, I need to, I need to get out of here to stop putting my mother through this. And it makes good sense. I mean, he went in at sixteen. Mm-hmm. He's a kid, and he was in twenty one years. Is that is that right? Eighteen. Eighteen years. So he was what? still. Yeah, 18 years. Yep. Yeah, I'm terrible at math. So <laughs> 18 years, you know, so he was in longer than he had been alive at that point. Right. I mean, that's that's hard on a parent. I mean, that's hard on him. But I mean, as a parent. Right. You get 16 years with your kid and then they're gone for the next 18. Right. That's yeah. hard. Yeah, it's rough. And she always she always stuck by him and, and always insisted on his innocence and kept pushing and fighting until he finally got out. All right, Jeff says, Jason's recollection of standing naked in that hallway while the other prisoners verbally abused him was heart-wrenching. How much actual physical abuse did he suffer in all his years in prison as a convicted child murderer? I can't imagine how he survived. Before you jump in on that, I mean, that was heart-wrenching. That yeah. story was terrible. I mean, I, I couldn't believe it. It was hard to listen to. You know, it's it's something you we've seen dramatized on television and things like that. But something about him telling that story, a real person, a person that I've met and stood, you know, and I've, I've had, you know, shared meals with. Telling me the story about what happened to him is, yeah, it's it's devastating, especially 16, mm-hmm. and they're all adults. Yeah. I don't. What was the question part of that, Mike? He asked, how much physical abuse did he suffer in all his years in prison? You know, I've never asked. I've actually never asked that of any of the people that I've worked with. You know, I, f- I feel like that's something that if they want to share, then I'm definitely willing to, to hear them out. And I'm definitely willing to make that public if they want to make it public. But I never ask because I, you just know some of the things that, that go on in prison. You know, there's guys like Ed Eights who came out and said, you know, he, he had it pretty easy as far as physical abuse goes because he was black and he was big. You know, he said, mm-hmm. so nobody really messed with him. If he just kept to himself, but even he said, if he hadn't kept to himself, he, it doesn't matter how big you are. They'll just find more guys. Yeah. But because, you know, he had those two things going for him. And he just kind of, he just kind of stayed back in the shadows. He didn't piss anybody off. He didn't cause any problems. He got through it all right, you know. And Jesse Eldridge, you know, shared with us that he had to, you know, had to fight his way through prison, you know, the, the whole time because he just he wasn't part of a gang or anything like that. So, you know, he didn't have anybody having his back. So he had to fight his way through prison. You know, and other people just have never really talked about it. Have never shared. Um, you know, Kerry Max Cook, who we covered his case, some of it in during season two, you know, he obviously he's written books about what was done to him, the, you know, the, the rapes and the beatings and everything. He, you know, attempted suicide on multiple occasions. So as far as Jason goes, I don't know. I mean, I, I, I suspect things were very rough for him, at least at first, you know, with him coming into prison, not only as a 16 year old kid. But a convicted child murderer. Yeah, I think that's the big part is the the being an alleged child murderer. I, I don't there's a code of conduct in prison even. Right. And and that's that's on the bottom yeah. for sure. Yeah, I've always heard that that there's, you know, in prison there's there's certain things that aren't acceptable. Mm-hmm. Even to, you know, other murderers. Hurting a kid is not Yeah, it's it's on the lower end of everything. Yeah. So I I'm sure he had a rough go of it at least at the the very beginning. As a matter of fact, I think that um I could be stepping out of turn here, but I, I I believe he had to get some some dental work done because I think he got he took some beatings and and they broke his teeth out. Mm. I, I believe he has shared that. I 
I guess don't quote me on that. I have to look that up again. But that just just in the moment, just now, I feel like I remember him telling me that story. You know, and and he talks about you know, Damien talked a little bit about, and Jason talks a little bit about for them and their experience. The biggest issue they had was the guards. You know, it was you know they 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 could not get beat up, but the guards were not only allowing it to happen, but were were setting up situations so that they could get the shit beat out of them. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, We've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Kelsey says, I never really realized how young Jason was until hearing him tell his story and saying he had just turned 16 before he was arrested. How did the decision come about for him to be tried as an adult? Are there any laws protecting juveniles from being sent to adult prisons? There are, um, and they vary state by state, but in most cases, and certainly was the case in Arkansas, there are exceptions, you know, for, you know, exceptionally violent or heinous crimes, they can charge, I think even down as young as 15 years old, I believe they can charge as an adult and try as an adult and send to adult prison. I think that's something I would love to see, you know, we're in a presidential election year, it'd be nice if some of the candidates would address that you know, it's it's another one of those things where there's two sides to it. There's you know, victims or victims' families certainly are like you know, I, I don't care about their feelings. Mm-hmm. I don't care if he was 16, he did X Y Z to my loved one. Send him to prison. Send him to that adult prison. But I I just think that I think our prison system is broken in the fact that you know no one is getting rehabilitated in our prisons and i think that's the major fallback we have not just within our criminal justice system but our nation as a whole you know the the prison systems and the criminal justice system are not something that we can ignore or or isolate from the rest of our world here the the rest of you know living in the united states it's a part of it there's a there's a percentage of human beings that live in our country that are going to end up in this system in one way or another. I think I think there's probably a real high percentage of people that are involved in the system in one way or another, whether it be as low as a traffic ticket or convicted of murder. And, you know, these people, we, we create this deadly cycle where someone gets, a, even if someone is guilty of a crime, they get arrested for it, they get convicted, and they get sent to prison. Well, oftentimes that crime they committed was, it was a mistake. Obviously, it was a bad mistake, something they shouldn't have done, but they made a bad decision and they made a mistake. But then they get into our prison system that's supposed to be rehabilitating people and they get in there and it's violent and it's dark and they have to join gangs to survive or fight or just take abuse. And it takes a person in a lot of circumstances who maybe was not a violent person when they went in 
and it creates a violent offender inside of our prison. So, so yeah, with all that being said, I think that a good part of our reform that we should be looking at is either you're an adult or you're not. I, th- I think it should be a hard and fast rule if you're under 18 years old, you go to a juvenile prison. If you go, if once you're 18, you can go to an adult prison. And maybe that's not harsh enough, but I don't think that I, I don't think that our focus should be on punishment, if that makes sense. I don't think prison should be about punishment. Prison should be about confinement for the the safety of the general population, and it should be about rehabilitation. I think if we focused on that in the way that other countries do, mm-hmm. I think as a, na- a nation as a whole would get better, not just our criminal justice system. If we have, imagine if when people went to prison for making a mistake, if they actually got educated and actually got rehabilitated and came out a better person than they were when they went in, how the, 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 the bad cycles in our country would slowly start to course correct over time. Um, but so, yeah, in, in my opinion, there should not be an option to send a 15-year-old kid under any or a 16-year-old kid under any circumstances into adult prison. But unfortunately, that's just not the way the law works. Well, I think there's a lot of gray area with there, too. You know, you said a hard 18. That's hard. Right. You know, there's so many gray areas. There mm-hmm. was a case here locally. It was a 17-year-old that stabbed his girlfriend because she was pregnant and wouldn't abort the baby. You know, right. it's pretty heinous in my eyes. He's 17. Yeah, for sure. Where You know, is is because he's a year under that. It's, you know. I think it, it, legislating's tough, right? Mm-hmm. Because it's, it's really hard to legislate for all circumstances. But then, but then the... The bad part about that is that you leave room for interpretation or for variance, mm-hmm. you know, so it's 18, 18 unless certain circumstances. So so that they could take that kid mm-hmm. and say, nope, you got to go to adult prison. And that's why it's like, but, but then what about the next kid and the next kid and the next kid? Yeah. And so that's for me, that's why I think it should be a hard 18. That kid, he's going to go to a juvenile detention center. Until he turns 18 and then move him into prison. Okay. Now, and then this is obviously, this is just my kind of utopian world mm-hmm. because it's not really utopian if we're talking about, you know, people doing violent things and going to prison anyway. But, you know, th- that's how it would work. In my mind's eye, that's how things would work much better. Even though in his particular circumstance, say he was two months away from turning 18, mm-hmm. is it really going to make a difference for him? Because he's that he spent the first two months in juvenile prison before he went to adult prison, probably not. But because that is established as a precedent, it will make a difference for the kid that makes a mistake when he's fifteen, mm-hmm. and at least gets to grow up a little bit and doesn't take the abuse. I also think that we should have much stronger restrictions on the guards. You know, everybody I know that's in prison that's had issues. It always comes back to the guards, and I, and I know there are great prison guards out there, but there are also a lot of corrupt, bad ones. You know, every time Ed, I would be talking to Ed Eights, and I could talk to him on the phone for two weeks because they were on lockdown. And I'd finally get him back on the phone, and he's like, "Yeah, they, you know, they 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 put us on lockdown because there's so many drugs in the prison." I was like, "Well, how did how are they getting in there?" He's like, "How do you think they're getting in there?" There's only you know, he's like, "None of us are on the outside, yeah, doing drug deals." Like, who do you think is bringing the drugs in? Yeah, and that's so common. It runs rampant where these, where you know, there's. I don't think there are enough educational requirements to, you know, I, I don't know who they're hiring as these prison guards, but they're getting these people in that are very easily uh, getting corrupted, and they're not only bringing in drugs, but they're also, you know, allowing beatings 
It's a very common thing that I've heard from multiple different prisoners that we've worked with, how, you know, somebody's got somebody on the outside that's going to give this guard some money if he arranges for so-and-so and so-and-so to get in the same room and, and turn their back so they can kill him or beat him up. It's just our, our prison. I know that's not what this episode's about, but it's a, it's a passionate topic of mine. I just, I think our prison systems need to be better. You know, I'm, I'm not saying that people shouldn't be punished or incarcerated for their crimes, but we need to do a better job of treating them like human beings once they are incarcerated and hope that on the other side of that, they come out better people. You know, and, and that goes all the way down to the county jail levels. I, uh, you ever watch the show 60 Days In? Nope. Mike, you? No. Okay. Well, I, I don't remember what network it's on, but I think it might have been A&E. But people would sign up to go be in prison or in jail, in a county jail, for 60 days. And the idea was the sheriff of that jail knew there were drugs in there. They knew things were happening. And so it was a TV show with all these hidden cameras. But, you know, for what they were getting out of it was these people on the inside can find out where the drugs are coming from, where the stuff's happening. Hmm. Once they were out, they would report back to them. But what you got is an inside look into what the jail, and, they, and every season was a different jail. And you got an inside look into how things worked there. And it was just, Becky and I used to watch it all the time. And it's just like, what is, why are there no cameras? Why are there no guards? People are getting the shit beat out of them. People are smuggling drugs in. And the TV crew's cameras were catching everything. But the guards didn't know what was happening. Hmm. It's like how, you know, I don't know what your budget is, but if you just paid one guy, you know, in, in these county jails, usually there was like a big open area. And then you know, all the cells were kind of around the perimeter and two or three levels around it. It's like if you just had one guard, that their job was to be in that open area at all times, you know, different shifts, so, you know, three, three people over a 24-hour span, none of this would happen. Literally none of it. Nobody would be getting their asses kicked. No one would be doing drugs. Like none of the stuff would happen. It's just I just I would just love to see that reformed in a whole lot of ways. John says on a previous podcast you mentioned how in order to survive in prison you have to join a gang. You recently stated that Jason had carved out a good life for himself in prison. How did he do that? Did he join a gang? He did that by his celebrity, actually. So it was really nothing to do with anything he was doing. But, you know, when, I, I know that when he got there, things were rough for him. I don't know all the details of that. I don't want to know all the details of that. But things were really rough. But then when the documentary started coming out and then there started to be this uh, Free the West Memphis Three movement and that information started getting back into the prisons, he, he's told me about how there, there came a time where guards started talking to him about it. Like, holy cow, you're, you're really innocent. And other inmates thought they were innocent. But the biggest thing was once he got the guards on his side, you know, that, that were like, okay, you're not a horrible child murderer and you're actually innocent. Well, then all it took, that's all it really took because then they started watching his back and they started looking out for him. And then over year, the years, he, I don't want to say accepted his role that he was going to be in prison, but he definitely made the best of it. You know, he reminds me a lot of Adnan Syed, kind of the same thing from our season one case where, you know, Jason was like, I'm, I'm here, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to stay out of trouble. I'm not going to, I'm, I'm going to stay on the good side of the guards. And I, he eventually got to the point where he got to work in the library, which, you know, he loves to read. So that was a great job. He got to work in the library. And so, you know, when I say he had a good life, obviously it's not the same life as being on the outside, but he was doing a job he liked. He was getting along with the guards. And they were watching as nobody was trying to hurt him anymore. 
So it wasn't. So, so that's what he meant when he said when, when what he's explained to me when he was like why he didn't want the Alfred plea because he's like, listen, I would I would rather fight this for another five years and actually prove my innocence than plead guilty to this because it's not that bad for me in here because he was so young. He he really didn't know any better. You know, he went into he only had 16 years of life and he was living very poor in this trailer park. You know, it, it's, he didn't leave leave some big, lavish lifestyle with wife and kids and things behind him, a life that he was trying to get back to. I mean, he was like you said, Zach, he was he was in prison longer than he was not in prison. Mm-hmm. You know, so he was willing to wait it out. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Dylan says, good day, Bobby, Zachy, and Mikey. (laughs) Probably one episode late to ask this, but I noticed that in the Eccles interview, their own investigation looked into the boys being killed elsewhere and then taken to the dump site. I've never heard this theory before. What are your thoughts? I've heard it before. There's a lot of theories out there. There's the manhole theory and there's a boat theory. There's the, you know, Damien talked about you know, the, the truck that maybe they were moved in a truck. Personally, I, I, I don't think that those are plausible theories. I don't either. I, I think that causes too much traffic back there that would be noticeable. It also doesn't make sense behaviorally. Yeah. You know, I, I mean, yeah. So to, to begin with what you said, so think about what that means. I think a lot of people that believe that maybe don't know. I can't say that because I know some people that know the case really well that believe that, and it's, it's not, no shade on them or anything. But for me, you know, a lot of people don't realize that this wasn't a vast wilderness. Yeah. Now, if you listen to our season five, you know that. But it, it was a very small uh, patch of woods about the size of a football field that was boxed in by a neighborhood. There was houses less than 100 feet away from where the boys' bodies were found. Mm-hmm. And there was an interstate right there and the truck wash. So, Well, and you're not getting a truck back there. To, no, to absolutely the not. Site. So you're parking somewhere, and then right. you're making. There's three boys, so you're you're making at least two trips, right? If not three trips back and forth with a vehicle park there, I, right. I feel like that that's no it's way too much foot traffic and too you know it's too long a time period being seen that somebody would have seen something if it had been like that. Yeah, exactly right. Because they'd have to park on the the interstate, the Blue Beacon side of the bayou. Mm-hmm. The only places they could park would be at the Blue Beacon. And then, so now you're in an operating truck wash pulling, you know, dead bodies out of your car because it's a 24 hour truck wash, mm-hmm. or you're parking on the side of the interstate doing it with cars driving by. And, and then, yeah, hiking them back into some rough terrain through the woods, putting them in the water one at a time. It just, it, it absolutely does not make any sense. And if you park at the other end where the pipe bridge is, there's a house right there uh, and apartment buildings. Yeah. And you have to carry them across a pipe bridge. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and then there, there's a lot. So, behaviorally speaking, too. So, first of all, that would have to happen while there were people searching. Mm-hmm. You know, people were in and, and people say, well, there was times when nobody was out there. That may be true, but an offender wouldn't know that. Yeah. You know, they, they know there's people out in the woods with flashlights searching. So they, they wouldn't go back in there. And so behaviorally speaking, if they were murdered somewhere else and then they were going to conceal the bodies, the last place you would ever go to do that would be back where people are looking. Mm-hmm. 
You know, the, the whole idea of body, if, if you have the, the bodies in a vehicle where you can take them wherever you want to, I mean, you pretty much got it made, especially in West Memphis, Arkansas. A couple miles down the road is the Mississippi River. Yeah, why wouldn't you dump them there? Yeah, you get them away. The whole the whole purpose in moving the bodies is to get them away from where they were killed, mm-hmm. to, to not let the people that are looking right there find them and for them not to be tied to that location. So behaviorally speaking, it doesn't make any sense. And look at the clothing. You know, so that would mean they either were already naked and they carried the bodies and then also separately carried the clothing and then stuffed the clothing all down in the mud right there. Or they undressed them down there. It just it just doesn't it doesn't add up. In my opinion, they were killed right there. I think the concealment happened happened very quick. And I think that's a lot of what built into my played into my profile that you have someone who is a hothead. You know, they, they they have a temper, they snap, but at the same time, they are calm under pressure, which might seem like an oxymoron. What I mean by that is they can lose their temper and lose their shit real quick, but then in the times of pressure, when something needs to be done, they are, I think anyone that knows this person would know that this is the person that always has a plan and can execute the plan very quickly. And I think that's why, in my opinion, within 30 minutes of the boys being killed, their bodies were in that creek, and the offender was out of there. Mary says, I'm interested in learning just how Jason was able to rebuild his life. What were his biggest challenges, his greatest joys? Keep fighting the good fight, gentlemen. You know, it was a slow process for, for Jason. You know, we, we mentioned last week how right after they got released, Eddie Vedder kind of swept Damien and Jason up and took him off to his, his place in, in Seattle, uh, which is like a mat. It's, it's a compound, is how it was described to me. and. uh that was kind of the start of it for Jason. You know, they there were TV cameras around filming him. You know, we all saw him west of Memphis when he ate his first salad with uh, with Holly, who later became his wife. Uh, but you know, he had he had a relationship with Holly, and 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 they wanted to build on that when he got off. So that was a good motivator for him. He wanted to stand on his own two feet. So he actually, I don't know if a lot of people know this. I didn't know it until he told me this. But his first job out of prison was working for Eddie Vedder. Do you know that, Zach? I did not know that. Yeah. So, so uh, after, you know, that that first week or so, or whenever they just, you know, they he got let him out there, kind of be isolated. Mm-hmm. Jason, you know, he told me basically Eddie Vedder told him they can stay there as long as they want. And Jason's like, man, I need to, I need to work. I need to get a job. I need to start earning. I need to start, you know, contributing to society. And so Eddie said, well, I'll, I'll hire you as a groundskeeper. And so he actually worked for Eddie Vedder as a groundskeeper for I don't remember how long. So he was like working and earning a paycheck. And that was, I mean, Eddie Vedder's an awesome human. Yeah. I mean, because what that did for him is it gave him in a very protected, sheltered place the opportunity to learn how to work. Mm-hmm. You know, because again, he was 16. He didn't work before he went to prison. Not a full-time job. Yeah, and it allowed him to be an independent human again. Right, and transition into that and learn those skills, but in a sheltered environment where if he was, you know, if he was freaking out or panicking about it, that he was, you know, he was with his friend who would say, okay, we'll just calm down. Let's get you what you need. So, yeah, so that was a big part of it. And then, you know, I, I think Holly was another big part of it. He just, you know, he he was in love with her. And, you know, over over the years, they eventually got married and 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 then his drive to help other people led him to start his his nonprofit organization, Proclaim Justice, which, you know, so I, I personally think 
in a lot of cases when people suffer from post-traumatic stress that one of the the best things that you can do to heal yourself is to have goals you're working towards. You know, whether they're small goals or big goals, if you have just something that you can you can set your your focus on and work towards it, I think that's very healthy and I think that's what Jason did. All right, Christina says, do Jason and Damien still keep in touch? They do. Uh they they talk quite a bit. Neither of them ever talked to Jesse because Jesse doesn't talk to anyone. He doesn't even have a phone. Uh, but yeah, Jason and Damien, I, I don't know how often, but definitely they're in, they're in pretty close contact. And I just know from, they both told me that. And then, you know, there's times where I'll talk to one or the other and, and they'll be like, yeah, I'll be talking to Damien. And I'll be like, yeah, Jason just told me the other day that X, Y, Z happened. So yeah, they, they, they keep in touch. I don't think that it's like every day. I know it's not like everyday connection there between the two of them. And I think that some of that probably, just from my assessment of watching the two of them and getting to know them both pretty well, I think a lot of that comes from, they're, they're in two very different places, as I mentioned last week, where Jason is determined to figure this thing out and to right this wrong. And he's kind of still in prison, whereas Damien wants to forget it. He wants the wrong righted, and he'll help in any way he can, but he doesn't want to talk about it. So I, th- I think that creates a bit of separation between the two of them. But they, you know, they're, they're both still friends and they do still communicate. All right. And our last question comes from Nancy. Jason seems like the most down to earth guy, like an all around good friend. Does he hold a grudge against Jesse and Miss Kelly? That is a great question. And the answer to that question is going to be found in this week's interview. We get into that exact topic in the second half of my interview with him. And his response is actually pretty shocking. So make sure you tune in on Sunday for episode 36. Truth and Justice is an NBI Studios production and is distributed by Wondery. Produced and edited by Mike Bussing. And all music for the show is created and composed by PutThemInASong.com. Our follow-up logo was created by Zach Weaver, and all of our font across all of our logos and banners were created by Tate Krupa of Red Swan Graphic Design. You can find more of Tate's work on Etsy. Thank you to Katie Ross of CreatedInTandem.com for designing, creating, managing, and maintaining our website, Truth and Justice Pod, where you can view all photos and documents discussed in every episode. A big thank you to our transcription team, Pamela Westby, Kathy McElhaney, Charlena White, Kaywood Yamnick, Ginger Fiola, Edith Swanneck, and Jen Reese in Candela. And as always, thank you to all of you for all of your engagement and support. If you like the show and you'd really like to support us, you can do so in a number of ways. To financially support the show, you can go to patreon.com slash truthandjustice. On the Patreon page, you can pledge as little as $3 a month, and we also have reward levels on Patreon that include access to behind-the-scenes videos of the tapings of our Friday follow-up episodes, ad-free versions of all of our episodes, Truth and Justice Army t-shirts and hats, and even the opportunity to co-host one of our Friday follow-up episodes. You can also help us out by going to iTunes and leaving us a five-star rating and review. And lastly, you can always support us by supporting the companies that sponsor this program. If you have a new case that you'd like us to consider for future seasons, you can submit your cases on our website, Truth and Justice Pod. Just click the case submission button and fill out the form. And the most important thing that you can do is engage in the investigations. You can keep in touch with us through our email at theories at truthandjusticepod.com. You can like our Facebook page or join in on the conversation on the Truth and Justice Podcast fans page. For all of you tweeters, you can connect with us on Twitter at TruthJusticePod. To follow our personal accounts on social media, I can be found at Bob Ruff Truth. 
Mike can be found at Merb Gaming, M-U-R-R-B-G-A-M-I-N-G, and Zach is at Z to the Q. And don't forget that we always have our 24-7 voicemail line open for questions, comments, and tips on our cases. That phone number is 269-224-2833. However you do it, stay engaged, stay in touch. But as for now, we're signing off. I'm Bob Ruff. I'm Zach Weaver. And I'm Mike Bussing. And this has been Truth and Justice. Come on, Hank. Come on, Come on in, Come on Hank. In. You I like lay, Hank. You got to lay down and be quiet. Lay down. Hank, no. No. Or is he going to lay by you? Yeah, he's going to lay by me, I guess. All right. Okay. Apparently, Hank all of a sudden likes me.